Hey everyone, welcome to the Physionic Podcast. In this special episode, I had the absolute pleasure of having a classmate of mine, David Rock, on the podcast to discuss his experience being in a vaccine trial for SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. As an immunology student and researcher, he does an excellent job breaking down his experience in the trial, side effects, as well as the science behind how the vaccine works and how we can estimate when the COVID-19 vaccine will be available. I hope you really enjoy this episode and be sure to listen to the whole thing because David really drops some important information throughout. Enjoy. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Physionic Podcast. Uh, if you're not familiar with who I am, my name is Nicholas Verhoeven. I'm a PhD student in molecular medicine. And today I have an incredibly interesting podcast. I'm really excited about this. This is kind of last minute, but I'm having a, a friend and fellow scholar, uh, David Rock, on, who's uh, studying immunology. I'll let him explain his credentials and whatnot in just a second. But uh, I really wanted to have David on because uh, he was involved in a vaccine trial. So we're going to be talking about that and kind of his experience and his knowledge base as well in immunology specifically. So David, uh, let's go ahead and jump into it. Who are you? What's, you know, what's your educational background and things of that nature? Sure. So as Nick said, my name is David Rock. I'm a rising third year PhD candidate in microbiology and immunology here at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And more recently, I've been taking part in a vaccine trial that's been taking place here at campus at the Center for Vaccine Development, um, where they're looking to see whether the Pfizer-BioNTech um, coronavirus vaccine is safe and whether it's efficacious. Um, my own thesis research here on campus, um, we look how maternal infections during pregnancy with pathogens like malaria or HIV change the baby's immune responses to completely utter different diseases after birth. So those are things that I'm interested in a little about myself. I'm originally from Southwest Michigan. Um, I grew up in Southern Mexico. I moved myself back to the US for college where I went to Northwest College in Powell, Wyoming where I got my associates in natural resources biology as well as the University of Wyoming where I got my bachelor's in um, molecular biology. After college, I was a US Peace Corps volunteer where I served for two years in Ghana and West Africa teaching high school biology and chemistry. And it was during this time working on health communication projects related to malaria that my interest in immunology really solidified, which is why I applied to PhD programs and why I'm now here in Baltimore. I'm surprised you didn't mention your affinity for coffee. <laughs> oh, I have a coffee cup around every corner as it's possible. <laughs> it's pretty impressive, let me tell you. Okay, great. Um, so just start out like generally, I'd really be interested in hearing your take on kind of your just general experience in the study trial and what exactly they were, they were trying to find out with this specific section of the, of the vaccine trial. Yeah. So when I first signed up for the vaccine trial, it was late, late, this, late April, early May. So New York cases were peaking. Um, we all had been in stay at home order here in Baltimore for about seven weeks at that point. Um, we were just seeing the general despair that was going around the news as hospitals were being overwhelmed and the death cases were spiraling up. So I had been doing my own part at that point. I was staying at home. I was helping with mask making. I was doing a little bit of science communication with friends and family on Facebook, but I was wanting to look at her a different way so I could still help get us out of this pandemic. So when early May came around and the university emailed out the announcement saying, oh, the Center for Vaccine Development is having a coronavirus vaccine trial, I went ahead and signed up for it. 
Um, and my thinking of it is I'm relatively young, I'm relatively healthy. So if there was any risk, I'm at the minor end of that risk as far as everyone in the population is. And in that case, when coronavirus is spreading around the world, it's sickening many people, it's crashing our hospital system, and the most vulnerable among us are dying from it. Anything that I can do as an individual to help us get to a safe and effective vaccine sooner is worth any minor risk to me. Okay, and uh, what what were they trying to figure out with this particular trial? Because I imagine, uh, my understanding, I'm not incredibly familiar with clinical trials, but they have different sections, right? They have like a, a phase one, phase two, et cetera. So what phase yeah. was this and what were they trying so to figure out? this was a phase one and phase two trial. So the way a vaccine trial would normally work is phase one, they just check to see if it's um, efficacious and if it's safe. So meaning, did you not have any adverse uh, vaccine reactions? And by adverse, I mean stuff like you had an allergic reaction, you went into shock, really nasty things of that sort. And then they also check for efficacy, meaning they're checking your body to see did whatever protein or RNA they inject you with, did your immune system develop antibodies against that protein? Phase two, it goes up. Phase one is generally around 40 people. Phase two is generally around 400, 600 individuals that they try to check for. And those same things they follow during the phase one, they're still checking for it in phase two, but they're also starting to see for other um, different markers, like in people who were in the placebo group that got like a saline solution injected into their arm versus those who got one vaccine injected into their arm. Is there a difference as far as those individuals as they go about their daily lives, walking around the community where there is COVID circulating, do one group or does the other group get more infections with COVID to help you tell you whether that vaccine is actually working at preventing COVID. Okay, yeah, great. Um, could you go into the trial design? So kind of generally how they go about that kind of stuff? Sure. So generally, the very first thing I did was I called the uh, Center for Vaccine Development saying I was interested in volunteering. So at that point, they went through a pre-screening checklist, basically making sure that yes, I was in the right age range and no, I didn't have any disqualifying health conditions for a phase one trial. Once I went through that initial phone screening, um, they gave me an appointment for the next week to come in where we'd go over as far as what the trial was looking to do, um, what were the risks involved, and then also do a screening for previous coronavirus exposure. Because there's no point trying to vaccinate someone who's already had COVID against COVID because it's the horse has kind of left the stable at that point. Mm. So I came in the next week, um, they did a health screening. So they checked my symptoms. They asked me if I had a fever, if I had a headache, if I had had um, loss of taste or smell in the last week. All my answers were no. I took my temperature. I got put in a room where I went through the informed consent form, which is basically outlining everything that's taking part in the study, um, what their goals are, what their hopes are, what the unknown things they do with. It's about 30 pages, so it takes about an hour to read. Um, then the doc different doctors who are in charge of running the trials here at the University of Maryland um, came in and they think I had a few questions and there also happens to be that there are some of the same professors I've had for immunology classes over the last year. Hmm. So it's like it took us like a good couple minutes to recognize each other with the face mask on. But then once the connection was made, it was like, oh, we can talk about the mRNA vaccines and how cool they are generally. Yeah, right. So I was still interested in participating. Um, I went ahead and signed the informed consent form. And that's when they did the screening, in which case was um, nasal swabs, just to make sure I'm not with an acute infection, which they would have checked on the PCR machine. 
but then they also took about 50 mils of blood, which they were doing to screen for blood, just to make sure I didn't have any blood abnormalities, that I didn't have any SARS-CoV-2 antibodies floating around already or antigen, things of that sort. Because as I said, they're trying to make sure you're actually naive before they start um, hitting you with the vaccines. So. Okay. And then they, they uh, broke people up into, my understanding is three groups, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. It was, uh... So when, when we came in the next week for the first vaccine, mm -hmm. it's a double-blinded randomized uh, trial, meaning that neither the participants nor the doctors are aware because they don't want any implicit bias going into analyzing the results. They want the results to be clean and to actually know for sure, yes, this person was protected because they knew they, they the vaccine worked, not because they thought they had this and then they started doing all these other different human behaviors that could happen if you knew your status as far as did you get the salt solution or did you get the vaccine? So when we came back in the next week for the actual first vaccine, um, what happened was they did the nasal swabs again, just to make sure I had not grabbed COVID walking around in the couple of days they had last seen me. Ran those through the rapid PCR, came back with results in an hour showing that I was still COVID negative as far as SARS-CoV-2. At which point the randomization process was happening at the pharmacy end. So neither the doctors or the participants knew, but the pharmacist and then the nurses who were injecting ran it through the computer system. It randomly assigned you to either the placebo group or one of the four vaccines because the Pfizer trials testing four vaccine variants. So randomly assigned those participants. They um, hid the needles, the syringes label so no one knew what they had and then they jabbed you in the arm with it. So that way um, the blindness of the trial was kept throughout the process. Hmm. Okay. And as far as this trial goes, um, to my understanding, as a phase one trial, um, it's every four people who get the vaccine, one person gets the saline solution, just because they're trying to make sure of the which vaccine is working better for their candidates. Okay, and you mentioned that they they had uh, they were trying to figure out if it was safe and also immunogenicity, right? I think yes, I think that's the term. Uh, did were there any negative reactions from like in terms of safety in, in this trial? So speaking as an individual who's participating in the trial, no, not from my end. Um, and this is where I've had a lot of interesting discussions with both friends and family over the last few weeks, because when I first told them I was like taking place in a vaccine trial, I had all sorts of reactions. I had from the scientists on the side are like, oh, that's so cool, good for you. And then I had other friends who were like, is it safe? Are your legs gonna fall off kind of reactions? Which is, it's very interesting because from here as a scientist in training, mm -hmm. as a immunology student, this is very much bread and butter. So like the topics that go into all the challenges behind getting a vaccine to, to work are fairly familiar for me. So I'm mm -hmm. not particularly scared of that side of the thing. But for a lot of people, it's just like all of a sudden it's, oh, there's a vaccine. Everything that's happened before that is very, very obscure as far as how they got that design, how they tested it in humans, how did it actually get to the pharmacy shelf later down the road. So it's just like a lot of my friends and a lot of my family think like, oh, adverse reactions. They think like, oh, you had a massive swelling in your arm. You had a um, allergic reaction. You went into shock, you shocked breathing, kind of things like that. But when it comes to vaccines, the most common reaction that someone has is they have pain in their arm after the shot. And that's the case across most of the board. So for myself speaking, when as my participation in the trial, the very first vaccine, the very first shot we had, 
that was in early May, so 10 weeks ago. Um, I had almost no pain. They jabbed me with the needle, and because we were in that uh, pilot study um, initial group, we were the first people getting the shot, um, they had us for four hours instead of the normal hour of observation. So we had the nurses just staring at the different participants as we were being monitored for symptoms, and they're like, feeling good? And I'm like, yep. Any changes? No. I have to go to the bathroom. Okay, come back in five minutes. And it's just like we came back. So um, I had a little tiny bit of pain later that evening, but no other effects. But also at the same time, this was the first time I had ever been exposed to SARS-CoV-2. So not going to give, not going too deep in the immunology weeds here, but the first time your immune system sees something, it doesn't know what to do with it. It has to tinker around with it for a little bit before it realizes, oh, this is a threat. We need to make antibodies and immune cells to go after this threat mm. kind of thing. So the first vaccine was very uneventful. Came in back for the second vaccines three weeks later, your immune system has developed those wanted posters against whatever protein that was made from the RNA vaccine. So I got jabbed in the, in the shoulder again with another, with the second dose. And that's when I started having a little bit more of the pain. And I've been jabbed by a lot of different vaccines over the years. So both as a kid and going to Ghana, I had all the different immunizations I needed. And it's like, I've had the range of as far as what reactions. This didn't hurt all that much. It's kind of like what I had for my flu shot here last year. So I had a little bit of pain in my arm the first day. On the second day, I woke up, I had a little bit of a mild fever. It was like 99.5, 99.7. I took Tylenol and it went away. When my Tylenol wore off, I took another Tylenol kind of thing. Yeah. Um, my arm hurt a lot more, I would say, with a little bit interfering from my normal day activities. I felt a little achy on different muscles, had a little bit of headache. But then when I woke up the next day, so that would have been third day, second day, third day after the second vaccine, I was back to normal. I still had the pain in the arm, but that slowly went away over the next couple of days. So it's like from any adverse vaccine safety thing, no, I didn't have any of those. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the, the initial re results they had with the immunogenicity? Sure. So... As I'm going through the vaccine trial, um, they were taking blood samples at every step of the way. Mm -hmm. And those blood samples initially were just to make sure I didn't have any blood abnormalities, but they were also quantifying what kind of an immune response you already had before the vaccine, after the first vaccine, and then after the second vaccine. So it's like I was coming in for most of the May and June regularly, like once or twice a week to have another blood draw so they could follow the progress of how the vaccine was working. So. Last week, um, it came out that the trial had released a preprint on MedArchive. And a preprint paper is something that has not yet been published by a journal. Uh, it's something that they've uh, uploaded to the server while they wait for the paper to go through the publication process, which can take a couple weeks. So this paper was mostly finished and included the results for the first 45 people that had been vaccinated as part of the Pfizer-BioNTech trial. So that includes both everyone here at the University of Maryland up to that point, the people at University of Rochester, NYU, and the Cleveland Clinic as well. So it was like a compilation of all the different sites that were being vaccinated and what their volunteers were seeing. So what they were saw and they reported in the preprint paper that's been uploaded was that the volunteers had been split into three dose assignments. They had a low dose that got 10 micrograms, a medium dose that got 30 micrograms, and a high dose that got 100 micrograms of vaccine. And what they saw is that across all three groups, they were developing antibodies against uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, and that's most, and that within those general antibodies that were being made, they were seeing more importantly, neutralizing antibodies that were being made. Meaning that if you mix 
the virus with the antibodies in a plate, shuck it around, and then toss it on a plate of cells to see if the virus would still infect. The antibodies were actually blocking the virus entry into those cells. So from the side of the immunogenicity data, it was a little bit of a stir in the media last week because everyone's like, oh, this is so cool. Because unlike a couple of the other trials that have been happening recently where they announced their findings, but they did so by press release and didn't give any of their data so scientists could pour over it, this a trial did give it as a preprint paper. So scientists on Twitter were just like reading through it. And it's like, oh, this is what's happening. But what about this? What about that? So that was the very interesting stir that was going around there. So they saw that, yes, uh, the vaccinees were developing immune responses. Um, and the way they were telling this, because at the moment, we don't really know what defines an immune response that protects you against SARS-CoV-2. We know what happens in someone who gets the placebo shot of saline solution. They have no antibodies. They have nothing. But then we also know what's happening in convalescent uh, patients who've recovered from COVID. So the, the preprint paper itself looked at both the people who got the vaccine, people who got the placebo, but using those same tests and the same pieces of equipment, they were testing blood samples from people who had recovered from COVID in the hospital. And what they were seeing was for those types of antibodies and those neutralizing antibodies, um, the people who did get the vaccine were having similar or higher amounts of those antibodies than what's seen in the COVID uh, recovered COVID patients. So even though we don't know how long those patients are going to have immunity if their antibodies decline over time, that the vaccine is having something similar is encouraging because six months into this pandemic, most of the individuals who get COVID have not gotten sick with COVID again. So it's encouraging as far as like a medium moderate length of immunity that it's possible um, the vaccine is inducing the same. Yeah, that was a fantastic explanation. Thank you. And then on the safety side for the vaccine, they saw a lot of similar results as what has been reported for the other vaccines. Um, so Pfizer-BioNTech's vaccine is not the first vaccine to show any immunity data. It's the first one to put it on preprint. Mm -hmm. But CanSino's vaccine coming out of China published a paper showing their results for their Adenal 5 vaccine against COVID. And their volunteers were also having some fever against the spike protein induced. And then Moderna reported some feverish symptoms as well. So the symptoms that came out of our study was at the medium and then at the high dose, most of the individuals reporting mild fevers. So like in that 9900s range that cured up with Tylenol, um, some muscle aches, something like that. But across the board, those individuals were better by the second day after the vaccine. So their symptoms were similar to what I had for that second dose of the vaccine slash placebo, depending on what was randomized. Yeah, that makes sense. So before we get into a bit of the immunology, so you can really stretch your legs and show off how much you know, uh, I am curious on a personal note, why did you choose to, to participate? I know you mentioned that other people were thinking, oh, it's such a cool thing. All the scientists and some of your friends and family were concerned on what, if, you're, if your leg's going to fall off. But um, <laughs> why, why did you think that you wanted to do it? So on a personal, it's something I've always tried to live my life with. And it's partially based on what parents have taught me, but also it's like my own values is putting others ahead of yourself. So I am not at risk when you look at the big data as far as what's happening with COVID. But I am someone who both as an individual, but also as a scientist in training, can step up to the plate and actually do something to help get the vaccine. Because it's very um, convenient to be like, oh, I hope the vaccine comes so we can get back to our normal 
ish day of life again. But to get a safe and effective vaccine, the vaccine has to go through trials first. And many of the vaccines that enter trials don't actually get to the end for many different reasons. So it's like the sooner I enroll, the sooner the vaccine we could figure out, does it actually work or not? If it doesn't work, all right, we move on to the next one kind of thing. So that was one of the main reasons. It's kind of altruistic in that sense, but it really is about, I see getting a safe and effective vaccine as the way for not only us here in the US, but for the rest of the world to get over the threat that COVID is playing in our daily lives. Yeah, that's really admirable. Thanks for sharing. Um, okay, so now let's get into a bit more of the science. Uh, how do vaccines for an RNA virus like SARS-CoV-2 theoretically work? Sure. So most of the vaccines that have happened up to recently have been either inactivated vaccines, meaning you took the virus, you inactivate it in some way, you injected the whole virus in with some adjuvant to try to get an immune response against it. Or there were uh, live attenuated viruses, meaning they had weakened the virus to such a point that the weakened version of the virus doesn't cause disease, so they can inject it into individuals and you'll get an immune response as your immune system beats up on the poor weakened virus that they just injected. Um, there's been other variations like recombinant protein vaccines where it's just the protein being put in or more recently as the case with the Ebola vaccine where they spliced in that one protein of the Ebola virus into a um, very weak uh, other virus that doesn't cause disease in humans that's, that's cool. to get an immune yeah. response against. Okay. So mRNA takes it to a different level in the case that they're not using a virus transport to get the vaccine protein that you're trying to get antibodies against into your cells. Instead, what happens is they take the mRNA, which is the genetic material for the virus, and instead of putting in all the viruses um, RNA sequence, they're taking just a little bit for the spike protein. So the spike protein is what COVID uses to get into your cells. It's what helps it latch onto your cells in the first place before it gets in. So if you inject just the RNA transcript that will code for that RNA protein for spike later on, the hope is that you'll develop antibodies just against that protein and have a lot of them available so that if you're ever exposed to COVID, you'd be able to block it from the get-go and prevent it from getting into your cells. So the way the mRNA vaccine works is it takes that little mRNA transcript for against the spike protein. There's some small modifications just to make sure it's still stable because it's no longer part of the larger, larger transcript. And also to make sure it lasts and doesn't get degraded by like RNA nucleases inside the cell. Um, and then it's packaged within a lipid nanovesicle, which stabilizes it and allows it to go straight into the cells and deposit the RNA into the cytoplasm where your ribosomes will come in, latch it and start making protein. Your cell will accumulate protein and go, wait a minute, what's this protein? Who ordered this protein? Oh, wait, it's a virus protein. Make an immune response against it kind of thing. So that's in a nutshell how this vaccine works. Yeah, that, again, extremely well explained. That was great. Uh, okay, so the next question is, are antibodies, you've mentioned antibodies before, but are antibodies the only way to combat viruses? Unfortunately, no. Antibodies don't equal your immune system. So there's a lot of other things that are happening at the immune system level. You have T cells, which are going around killing infected cells. Um, also putting in my plug, NK cells do the same thing earlier on in the immune response. So it's just like, as I've been saying, um, we don't know what means causes someone to be protected against COVID-19 yet. It's still, it's still such an early virus. We still don't have enough time points as scientists to be able to say definitively, if you have this and that, you're protected. 
Um, so antibodies are one part of the equation. Um, we don't know as far as what the T cells are doing in the case of the vaccine strategy. And what their role is, is still a lot to be determined. We know that T cells are very important, like if you are sick with the virus and clearing up the virus from all the infected cells by killing those cells. But in the case of if you're reinfected and you're rechallenged by the virus as it goes around your immune system, it's probably antibodies that play a role at that point at blocking the uh, virus from continuing. So the hope is that by having good antibodies, you'll be able to prevent the virus but there's still within immunology, you need a certain amount of a T cell response to get a nice robust antibody production. So it's something that's gonna to have to be looked at as we go forward. Just as a quick follow-up on that, the T cells, is that because uh, you mentioned that you're, I, I guess you're talking about cytotoxic T cells, is that is that the, the type of T cell so, you're talking about? Cyto, yeah, cytotoxic T cells would be involved in tracking down the cells that are infected okay. and eliminating them. Helper T cells would be needed to get those mm. B cells that make the antibodies to be highly efficient antibody making machines that can pump out a lot of antibodies in your bloodstream to neutralize the virus. So you don't want something that just only targets the B cells because it won't last very long and your immune protection will go away once the B cell tires out. You want your uh, vaccine antigen to overlap enough between the B cells and the T cells that they are able to help each other and collaborate in targeting whichever antigen the pathogen has. Okay, great. Uh, do you think that, um, do you think there are certain advantages to like M like uh, mRNA viruses compared to like protein viruses or anything of that nature? As far as the vaccine approach, mRNAs are fast. So like mm. what we've been seeing with both the Moderna trial, which is also an mRNA-based vaccine, as well as with the Pfizer, they're very fast, they come out quickly. Unlike previous protein vaccines or other live attenuated virus vaccine where you had to like culture the virus or culture the protein in cells, then break up the cells, mm. harvest it, extract it, purify it, and then put it back into the vaccine. Yeah. mRNAs can be synthesized relatively efficiently and quickly. So there's that component to it that makes it helpful. Um, as far as the mRNA itself goes, I'm interested in seeing how it goes because there's been other attempts at mRNA vaccines before, but the interest has fallen off. So it's like there were starts of working on mRNA vaccines against Zika, and then Zika burned itself out of the population. There was attempts at Ebola vaccine using an mRNA approach, but then we got an effective Ebola vaccine, so the market kind of fell out there. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the long run. Um, and then something as immunologists in training I'd be interested in seeing is how this approach differs from the traditional adjuvant approach at getting an immune response. Yeah, okay, great, thanks. Uh, okay, so I've got one quick question written down left, but I do want to ask you a second one that's based on immunology in general. But uh, when would you guess that a vaccine might be ready for, for this coronavirus? So the current thing that would be determining the when the vaccine comes is being able to look at the data on bigger scale. So what we have released, what has been released from the study currently is the interim results. It's from the initial 45 people, mm. but the trial is still enrolling another 600 people. So those people are still going through the pipeline for the phase one and phase two trial. So they're still getting all that immunogenicity data from those participants. They're figuring out which of their four vaccine candidates is the best as far as generating the most of an immune response with a little bit less of the fever symptoms. 
So then you still have to make that decision as far as like what candidate is ideal, which is best. But at the same time, just because you're generating antibodies doesn't mean those antibodies are going to work in an actual um, walking around human being as they're exposed to COVID. They may work at neutralizing the virus within a Petri dish, but in real life, it might be a different scenario. So they're still following the phase one and the phase two trial volunteers for quite a bit of a long time. And how long they have to go for those phase one and phase two volunteers as far as their monitoring, it depends on the virus itself. So if you're in an area with high viral exposure, it's really easy to tell relatively quickly who in the placebo versus who in the vaccine group gets infected. Mm -hmm. Because if the virus is everywhere, you have so many chances you would expect placebo people to get sicker if the vaccine was um, actually working at preventing. But if you have really low circulation of virus in the community, like currently here in Baltimore, we're at like 4.8 to 5% positivity rate on the maternal test. That's going to take a while because when one in 20 people walking around may be infected with COVID, it'll take a lot more of those volunteers walking around their community before they're actually encountered the virus. So it's like, we are still doing our own part. We're still social distancing. We're wearing masks when appropriate. Um, so we will be exposed at baseline just as everyone else in the community is, but that could take time to get a statistically significant number that tells you, we think the vaccine works versus it doesn't. And then that still applies up at the phase three level, which is the really big trials which are happening around the country, not longer at just four places, but like every state has multiple vaccine centers start running them. Um, they're like for Moderna, which their phase three vaccine trial is beginning at the end of the month. They're trying to get 30,000 people and looking on uh, their website, they're showing that they have one to five vaccine trial centers in every state across the country. Their map's just covered. So it's like they have to vaccinate those people. They have to vaccinate them again three weeks later, and then they have to follow them up. And then that's question is, where will the vaccine be? Where will the virus be circulating when they're all ready to be able to test? So it's like right now our hotspots are in Florida, Texas, and other parts of the South and the Sun Belt. But six weeks from now, when those volunteers have been vaccinated, well, the virus will still be around in enough numbers to be able to test. So when um, companies are saying they expect it by the end of the year, um, that's hopefully optimistic and hopefully it will be the case. Um, we will see though, it depends on what's happening in the community because ultimately what we want to do is we want to know that these vaccines are actually effective. We want to know that they are safe, not just in the limited number of individuals, but in a large cohort of individuals. So 30,000 people vaccinated. So all these different factors will come into play as we saw, as they move forward in the regulatory approval process. Hmm. That's really interesting. I definitely did not know that uh, the environment, the place that you're in, the, the where it's actually being done, the trial is, uh, is such a, a big yeah. factor. So like in a case of the University of Oxford's vaccine, which is I think they're collaborating with AstraZeneca now, they were having issues as far as like, can they test it in the UK based on the current numbers? This was before there a little bit of an up spike in the last week or so, because they're like, it's gonna take, a, if you have only limited number of virus cases in the community, it'll take you a lot longer to be able to see that measurement to say, oh, we know for sure the vaccine is more effective than a placebo and it wasn't just people in the vaccine group never saw the virus, so you can never test that part of it. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So uh, I just have one more question, which is really general. Uh, I like to end the podcast when I'm interviewing uh, people on, on this question, which is uh, what 
what makes you really excited about immunology? Like what's something that you find really fascinating and what really got you into the, the field in the first place? So it's interesting. When I first started college, I wasn't, didn't even know what immunology was. Mm. I wanted to be a wildlife biologist and watch birds for my career. But then sophomore year, I was in the microbiology class and then I had took organic chemistry and I'm one of those unfortunate souls that actually liked the class. So it was just a downhill slide into molecular biology at that point. Right. What I really enjoy is tying together concepts. So it's like, I've been one of those individuals that I've been sick over the years, but actually understanding how this is playing around in the background. Because like a lot of this, why I associated as a kid as being, oh, the virus is making me sick. It's actually, no, it's your immune responses response to the virus because fever, heat, swelling, redness, those are the classic signs of your immune cells doing their job. And it's so much that's not known about how immune systems work, how they all interact, what causes one individual, like even the case of COVID right now, it's like, why do some people get sick, very, very sick, and other people are fine, but asymptomatically spreading the virus? Why do some people walk into the hospital and do very well while others are having severe organ failure? Hmm because of the virus. These are all things that are completely unknown. There's just so much that's uh, left to be unraveled and discovered about how immune systems work. That's one of the things that drives me and trying to understand. And also something that unlike, there's a lot of areas in science that I found the research very interesting, but it also has the impact of helping many, many different people in fairly immediate circumstances. So it's like, I'm interested in global health. I'm not just interested in a disease that affects very few numbers of people. So it's like, if there's something that you can do that will that will um, legibly help people across the globe, that's something I'm interested in. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad uh, the immunology field has you. Uh, okay, so as a final thing, just to, just to end things off, is there anything that you want to plug, anything you want to say uh, that's going to go out to the public to potentially help, or if there's social media or anything that you want to plug? Sure. So I'm one of the volunteer participants here in the vaccine trial at University of Maryland School of Medicine. I am not the first person immunized in the world. Um, I'm not the first person vaccinated in the world. Jennifer Holler from the Moderna vaccine gets that title. Um, even though we're seeing promising results with many of the different vaccine candidates at the moment, that doesn't mean that we should give up on everything else that preventing the virus from spreading and celebrate. There's still a very long road ahead of us before we get a successful and efficacious and a safe vaccine that's for COVID. Um, that could be early, or some point later this year, or it could be a long time after that. So what we do now has an impact in our communities today. So if we completely give up on social distancing, if you're not wearing your mask, your hospitals will be overwhelmed. And a lot of those deaths that could be preventable will just rack them up. So it's really on us as individuals, both younger people like me and you, Nick, but also everyone else in our community that are play a major role. So wear your mask, keep a reasonable distance from other individuals. And if you are at risk and you think you've been exposed, please seek out a test. It's, it's called the box it in strategy. There's all these different things we can do to keep the virus from spreading in our communities, to try to keep those deaths down, to give the scientists who are working in the background a fighting chance at getting the vaccine so we can move forward and have this pandemic as a long, long, long ago memory when we're all getting together next year. Yeah, sounds good. 
Well, uh, on that note, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This is going to be really, really interesting for a lot of people that really want to get a, a better understanding. And honestly, your explanations were top notch. I mean, really, oh, really good. Thank you, Nick. Um, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, no problem. And uh, for everybody listening, tune in next week and catch you then. See ya.